and we are live good evening and good day everyone hope you are doing great uh, it's great to be back with you i hope i am audible I, my sound is fine i think yesterday there was some sound issue i have uh, changed the setting so i think i i hope i'm properly audible today so today as you know we are discussing world history today is an interesting episode and as always you have asked me a great lot of questions when very good questions i have picked a few of these so let us get into that right away with question number 1 so question number 1 is by anmol why did the romans adopt christianity contrary to what they did to the christians in the beginning so that's a very nice question it's an interesting question and uh, the the thing is this the roman people did not adopt christianity it was not their decision to adopt christianity it was the decision of the roman emperor constantine so constantine was uh, the emperor of the roman empire in the early in the first half of the 4th century and uh, he is he is called constantine the great probably because he officially he made he made christianity the official state religion of the roman empire so until that time the romans followed roman paganism the, the polytheistic religion which was closely related to the greek religion and the ancient vedic religion it's all the same different manifestations of the same uh, ancient tradition so that's what the romans uh, followed that's what they practiced christianity is something that emerged around the year 1 ce or thereabouts you know and it was a cult it was a cult that said that you will go to hell if you don't uh, worship the god that we worship and you don't follow our uh, teachings and all that so when someone tells you that you're going to hell you're not going to like them too much right so the romans did not like the christians uh, christianity was not adopted by the roman people they did not like it christians were persecuted by the roman emperors because it was a militant sect it was a it was a well organized militarily organized kind of sect and it was clearly um, aimed at attaining political power so the roman emperors did not like christianity they persecuted christians the roman people also did not adopt christianity a few of them did but they were in a very very significant minority but over time the christians uh, continued their expansion and it became uh, there was a period of religious uh, strife uh, in the second and third centuries right and eventually this guy constantine the great so he came to power in the very beginning of the 4th century as the roman emperor and he recognized the power that christianity had as a unifying factor he recognized that it's a militaristic religion it's a hierarchical structure that christianity has so it's very well suited for uh, for controlling people so he decided he made the political decision to make christianity the official religion of the roman empire so he did this i think in 313 ce i if i am not mistaken and that's when uh, the christian religion spread began to began to spread and became uh, mainstream so it is then that the romans were made to adopt christianity in large numbers and very soon it was it was spread all over europe in a military fashion it was spread by the sword there were crusades there were crusades within europe also 
we know about the crusades that went eastwards into uh, and uh, whose aim was to recapture jerusalem from the muslims but there were crusades within europe also the expansion of the of this religion was quite uh, militaristic and quite violent and uh, this is all brought out very well in a book by Catherine Nixie, which, which is called The Darkening Age, which uh, details, which brings out in great detail the uh, Christian destruction of the classical world, of the, of the ancient uh, pre-Christian polytheistic European traditions and culture. So that's how uh, Christianity came into the mainstream, because Constantine decided to, to use it as a political tool of, of, uh, of controlling the people and uh, and the and his empire so that's how the romans adopted christianity eventually the western roman emperor uh, empire uh, became decrepit it kind of collapsed but the eastern roman empire which was centered around the city of constantinople old byzantium this eastern roman emp empire uh, prospered and flourished for uh, at least a thousand more years until it was brought down by the ottomans so this eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire was a great bastion of Christianity and it, it uh, like I said, it lasted for a very long time. So that is in short how the Romans were made to adopt Christianity. It was a political decision by one of their emperors, Constantine, the so-called great. Okay, so that's how it happened. And and like I said, they, the, like they, the Romans persecuted the Christians initially for a couple of centuries at least because they did not... Uh, they did not uh, like the religion and the preachings and the teachings and all that, which said that you are go all going to hell. So that's uh, that's an interesting chapter of history. Okay, this is by Shreya Shivani. There's this amazing movie, Agora, on the life of Lady Hypatia. Catherine Nixie's book mentions her. Uh, why was she murdered? Was it one of the first cases of witch hunting? Do you think the scientific advancement that was happening until in the world until 580 got arrested suddenly with the rise of certain cults, religions, and the world went into a shell for a thousand years? Still, the Renaissance happened in Europe. So this uh, lady Hypatia was a she lived in Alexandria, ancient uh, Egypt, which was at that time quite Hellenized. So it was under the influence of the Roman and uh, uh, Greek cultures because it was part of the Roman Empire, the nascent Byzantine Empire. So Hypatia lived sometime in the 4th and 5th centuries. She was born sometime in the second half of the 4th century. And uh, I think she died sometime in, uh, in the early 5th century. So she was a mathematician, she was an astronomer, and she was a philosopher. And uh, she, had, uh, she had many loyal... Uh, pupils. She was renowned as a teacher, as a great teacher. And uh, she did a lot of original work in the field of uh, especially mathematics and astronomy. Her father her, uh, himself was a mathematician and astronomer. So she did original work in mathematics and astronomy. It has all been lost, but the but uh, commentaries about it still, still survive. So we know that she had done a great deal of work. At that time, I think she was the uh, foremost mathematician and astronomer of the Western world. So that is uh, how eminent she was. And she was a pagan, which means she, she, uh, her religion was uh, the Roman uh, polytheistic religion, 
or the Greek polytheistic religion, the pre-Christian religion of the uh, Roman and Greek uh, worlds. So that's what she she practiced. That was her uh, her uh, religious or cultural background. And this was a time of great strife because it is around this time that Christianity uh, was in the process of being adopted by the Byzantine Empire, right? And there was a great deal of religious strife between the Christians, the polytheists, and the Jews as well. So Alexandria was one of the flashpoints of this crisis. There was a great deal of political intrigue going on between the Roman, uh, between the Roman governor, between uh, the Christian religious uh, uh, leadership, and also between the Jews and between the uh, the polytheists who were the original uh, who practiced the original culture of the region. So Hypatia was basically a target of the Christians because she did not convert to Christianity, and she essentially treated all her pupils the same, whatever background they were for, from. And she was, uh, I think uh, she had some political and connection as well. I think the Roman governor or somebody was a pupil of hers. And uh, because of this, the Christians accused her of, uh, of playing politics and uh, influencing the, the government in a certain direction. And I think at some point she was accused of witchcraft. And so because of all these things, she became a target of the Christian fanatics. Like I said, Christianity spread in the old world, in the in the Western world, by violence, by, by, by massive violence, shocking brutality. And so they targeted her. And in the year 415, I think, she was dragged out of her carriage and she was uh, murdered in the most horrific manner by a Christian mob. So I, yeah, it, it could be considered to be one of the first cases of witch hunting. Witch hunting doesn't mean a person is a witch. It means that this person is targeted for, for elimination or for persecution because of their religious beliefs, which don't align with Christianity. So this is one of the, uh, one could say first, one of the first recorded examples of a person being uh, targeted by Christians for not, for not practicing Christianity. So Yes, so about your second question, the scientific advancement that was happening in the world until this time because of people like Hypatia and other, uh, other scholars and philosophers and scientists and mathematicians, astronomers, all this was suddenly arrested with the spread of Christianity. They went after all old knowledge because it was dangerous for them. They wanted their new uh, set of laws and rules and their new book to become the only uh, authority in the world. So they went after all old knowledge. The old knowledge was in the fields of medicine, in the fields of science, astronomy, mathematics, philosophy. All of that was targeted. People like Hypatia were prime targets. First of all, she was a woman. And secondly, she was a torchbearer of the old culture. Uh, so Christianity also, the, the old Christians, the early Christians, they were all patriarchal. That is where this uh, this anger against the patriarchy is. That's why it is so great in the Western world because their own history is full of uh, misogyny and the and the targeting of women. So, so that's what happened. Hypatia was killed. Others like her were were persecuted. They had to run off from Alexandria, and they they were essentially basically eliminated eliminated from the entire Christian world. And that's why. Uh, 
there was this thousand years called the dark ages in which there was no progress in science. Whatever scientific advancements had happened at that, until that time were all wiped out. The memory was lost. All the works were destroyed. They were burned. Libraries were burned. And that's how the, Euro the European uh, world, the Western world, went into a thousand years, a millennium of, of the dark ages, where it was steeped in superstition and backwardness and there was no progress at all. So it is the rise of Christianity that coincided with this uh, this darkening age that Catherine Nixie speaks about. So these are facts that are not really well known and uh, I think we need to discuss them more because this helps us understand how the world evolved and these are some of the forces that are still seeking to shape and mold the world, especially now in the East. So Christianity is basically uh, very much on the decline in the West. And uh, the West has essentially, the Western society is right now kind of lost. They have lost their moorings. It was Christianity that uh, was their ideological and moral uh, anchor point for about a thousand and a half years. Now they have they are they are in the process of rejecting it, right? It, it's well known. Many Europeans and Westerners are now calling themselves atheists because they reject Christianity. And so it is being replaced by this new uh, <laughs> ideology right now, the so-called woke religion. So that's why we see so many confused people in the West right now. So Christianity is now trying to spread eastwards because it needs to stay alive. It needs to survive. So we need to understand how it spreads by studying its history, which is very well documented. So we, we can get an idea of, uh, of the dynamics and mechanics of this, uh, of, of how, it, uh, how it spreads. So that's a great question. Minakshi asks, who were the Varangians? So the Varangians were ancient uh, Scandinavian people. Scandinavians means Vikings. So let's take a look at the map. Who were the Vikings? Who were the Varangians? So we are here in India right now. Yes, this is India. Let me go back westwards so that we can see what Scandinavia is. So Scandinavia essentially is three countries, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. You could also include, include Finland and Iceland to some extent, but mostly Scandinavia is Norway, Denmark and Sweden. So the people from this region were called the Vikings about a thousand or so years ago. The Viking age was between the 8th centuries and the 11th centuries. This is the age of Viking expansion when they were very much prominent, prominent and they invaded and raided and conquered great, great uh, last, uh, large territories across Europe. So the Varangians were one branch of these Vikings. Okay, They were called Varyag in the Slavic world. And one branch of these uh, Varangians settled in a place called Novgorod in the region of Russia. Where is Novgorod? It's somewhere in this region. Okay. So these guys were called the, uh, the, the Kievan Rus. There was a guy called Oleg, Prince Oleg. He conquered Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine today. And he established the Kievan Rus state. So the original Rus were actually Vikings. They were called the Kievan Rus. These Vikings conquered Kiev. They established, they settled this region. They established the Kievan Rus state. And the first, before Oleg, it was a guy called Rurik. 
a Viking called Rurik who settled in Novgorod and then Oleg settled in Kiev. So that's how the uh, expansion of these guys happened. And uh, they established the Kievan Rus state. And they essentially controlled a great deal of the trade routes in Europe across the river Volga and other rivers. And this trade was between the European Christian world and the Islamic world, which was uh, centered in Baghdad at the, at the time. So they stopped, they in, indulged in piracy, they indulged in trade, they indulged in raiding. They even uh, had contacts with the, with the Byzantine Empire, which was uh, centered around Constantinople, present-day Istanbul. Some of them even uh, served as the bodyguards of the, of the Byzantine Empire. So they, they were very adventurous people. They traveled everywhere. They traded with uh, various countries. In Baghdad, they traded even with Indians. So they had contacts even with India at the time. Some Vikings may possibly even have traveled to India. If they did, we have lost the records of that. So Baghdad is over here in Iraq. So that's what these uh, Varangians were. So eventually with the decline of the Viking age, the, uh, the Rus, these guys, they were slowly Christianized in the 10th century. And by the 11th century, by the end of the 11th century, they were assimilated among the larger Slavic population of this of the region that is now Russia, Ukraine, etc., Belarus, and they became Christianized and they became assimilated into the Slavic culture. So today, if we look at Russia, it's a Slavic uh, Slavic land. The people are all of Slavic culture, Slavic extraction. The culture is fully Slavic. There is no trace of Scandinavian culture, Viking culture. And yet the name Rus, Russia, comes from the Kievan Rus, who were originally Vikings. So it's a very interesting history. That is essentially the birth of Russia that we are witnessing here. The arrival of the Kievan Rus and the formation of the Kievan Rus state by the Varangians. So they were called Varangians by various people. They were called Varyag by the Russians. And uh, that's a very interesting story. So that is, in a sense, the story of the of the birth of the Russian nation, of the Rus nation. And it, it is a very tumultuous history. Lots of things happen later. But that how essentially is how it happened. That's, that is essentially the, the birth of this nation, or, or at least the ethnicity, who call themselves Rus. Okay, a related question. Why was Russia never invaded by anybody? Uh, many say it was the cold weather that has always blessed Russia. Does India have any kind of natural alliance to protect itself? So like I just mentioned about the Varangians, they did invade and settle Russia. So the Vikings, the, the Scandinavians, they came from a very cold climate. So the Russian cold weather did not really make much of a difference to them. So they came into Russia, they conquered this territory, they settled there, and eventually they assimilated with the local Slavic people. And today, we don't see any traces of, of Scandinavian culture in Russia. So that is an instance of a conquest of this region, of the Russian region, by outsiders. Right? So Russia was invaded by the Vikings, successfully. And later on, we had... The, we had another invasion of Russia. We know that many invasions of Russia have failed because of the cold weather. We know that Napoleon tried to invade Russia. Uh, his uh, invasion ended in absolute disaster. Uh, we know that uh, Adolf Hitler tried to invade Russia less than 100 years ago. His invasion was the beginning of his decline because it was a disaster once again. 
So Russia's extreme cold weather and, and immense inter- interiors, immense geography has always been the bane of any invader unless they knew how to deal with such terrain and such climate. So the Vikings were able to do it. And later on, even more successfully, so were the Mongols. So the Mongol Empire suddenly emerged out of nowhere during uh, the during the lifetime of one man, Chinggis Khan, the great Khan of the Mongols, the founder of the Mongol Empire. Now, Chinggis Khan never invaded Russia. It was he was never uh, he had never any reason to invade Russia. He was never wronged by the Russians. But one of his generals called Subotai uh, did a reconnaissance mission in this region. So once again, let's go to the map. So once again, here we are. So what happened was that Chinggis Khan was from Mongolia. He went to war with the Khwarazm Empire, which is Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, parts of uh, other regions, this Central Asian region. And he went to war with these guys. He invaded this territory because they had uh, done a lot of, they they had killed his ambassadors and, and confiscated confiscated his goods and all that. So he went to war in retaliation. He devastated the Khwarazm region. He conquered it. He was successful. And then he was pursuing the last Shah of Khwarazm, Jalaluddin, all the way to India. So he ended up in the Indus Valley region. And I have made a separate video about that, why he refused to conquer India. So Chinggis Khan was going south towards India. At that time, his general Subotai was in charge of subduing the rest of the Khwarazm region, which he did successfully. And then Subotai, of his own initiative, decided to go on a reconnaissance mission to the west. So basically, he went all around the Caspian Sea. The Caspian Sea is this this, uh, body of uh, water here. So Subotai, this general of Genghis Khan, on his own initiative, decided to do a reconnaissance mission. It was one of the greatest reconnaissance missions in history. He basically went all around the Caspian Sea. He, He circled it to find out what lies beyond. And that's how he came to know about Russia. But he was not under orders to invade and conquer any territory. So he just went around the Caspian Sea region. He did a good reconnaissance. He got an understanding of the geography and and the kind of lands and people that lie beyond that region to the west. And he came to know about Russia. That's how the Mongols were introduced to Russia for the first time. So Chinggis Khan died in 1227. His third son, Ogade, became the Khan of the Mongols. And it is under Ogode Khan that Subotai invaded Russia. He invaded uh, Eastern Europe and that was an extremely successful invasion. And later on under, uh, under other Khans as well, there were invasions of Russia. And essentially the whole of Russia was conquered by the Mongols. And that is what uh, brought to uh, brought the Kiev, uh, the Kiev uh, region to a decline. The seat of power in the Russian region used to be Kiev. But because of the Mongol invasions and the devastation of this region, Kiev uh, declined greatly. And that's how Moscow, the, the, the region of Moscovy, became prominent in Russia. And that's how today Moscow is the number one city in the Slavic world. That's how it is the capital of Russia. So, so the Mongols had absolutely no problem with the cold weather or the immense geography of Russia. So, so that goes on to tell us that Russia is not an unconquerable place. It, it, you need to know how to deal with the with the terrain, geography, and the climate. And the Mongols were perfectly fine with that. They, they, they were great at conquering great enormous territories. 
So it is not the cold that has always protected Russia. The cold has not prevented the Vikings to a small extent and the Mongols to a great extent from invading and conquering Russia. So India historically had the Himalayas, the Himalayas that protected India. But in today's world, uh, mountains don't matter. Those can be those can be overcome with technology, with with uh, aircraft and all that. So uh, India can no longer count on the Himalayas to to defend it from invasions. And during, even during the Turkic invasions, they were able to circumvent or bypass or go through the Himalayas via various passes and all that. So it is a kind of a natural barrier to some extent, but it's not prevented invasions from happening. Okay, this is a good question. Why were the Jews treated poorly even before Hitler portrayed them as a cursed people? So that's a good question. So we think about uh, anti-Semitism when it comes to Hitler only. But uh, the persecution of the Jews has a very very lengthy history in, in Europe. So the Jews have been present in Europe for about 2000 years, maybe even before that maybe a couple of centuries before that. So the persecution of the Jews by Europeans begins essentially with the Roman conquest of Judea. It was done by Pompey the Great, who conquered Judea in the in the first century BCE. And uh, so the temple of Solomon was destroyed and lots of uh, Jews were taken as slaves and uh, transported all the way to Rome. And that's how the first Jewish presence uh, appears in, in Europe, in Western Europe. And they may have been Jews settled in, in other parts of Europe even before that, possibly. But uh, this is the first uh, large-scale influx of Jewish people into Europe as slaves of the Romans. Now, there was a lot of Christian hostility, hostility towards the Jews throughout the first millennium, uh, first millennium. And the reason for that is because of the uh, view that the Jews were the ones who crucified, who, who were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, there were various uh, allegations made against them of being anti-Christian. And, uh, and there are things about uh, written about the Jews in the, in the New Testament, I believe, or one of these books, holy books of Christianity. So this gave a great deal of impetus to uh, anti-Jewish sentiment in Europe during the first millennium. Then you had in the in the 11th century, at the end of the 11th century, you had something called the German Crusade, in which Jews were targeted for the first time in Germany uh, at, at a very high level. I mean, uh, to a great extent, lots of Jews were rounded up and killed in uh, a number of cities in Germany. So the thing was that at this time, you had these crusades going on. Uh, the church was organizing these uh, invasions of the so-called Holy Land, which is Jerusalem and the region around it, basically present-day Israel. And the aim was to reconquer this Holy Land from the from the uh, non-believers, from the Muslims. But the Germans rationalized that, why do we have to go several thousand kilometers to fight non-believers when we have non-believers in our own land? So that's why they went after the Jews in Germany itself. This was called the German Crusade. And it resulted in a great deal of oppression and persecution of the Jews and many deaths. Then you had the Second Crusade in France in which something similar happened. It was in the 12th century. The Jews were banished from England in the 13th century. Uh, there was a massacre of Jews in France in Strasbourg. In the 14th century, I think, 
about a thousand Jews were burned alive in the city square. And they were also expelled from France in the 14th century. They were expelled from Austria in the 15th century. Now, in the mid, in the middle of the 14th century, there was this great black death in Europe, which was the bubonic plague. And the Jews were convenient scapegoats. So the Jews were uh, accused of, of uh, being responsible for this great illness because at the time, no one knew what a microorganism or a bacterium was. So this was some great uh, black magic or devilry or Jewish magic or something. So they were accused of doing this. They were accused of spreading the black death by poisoning wells. And they were also accused of... Uh, of abducting and killing Christian children and using their blood for some occult practices or something like that. So that is the kind of uh, allegations that were made against the Jews and they were greatly persecuted. They were expelled from Spain in 1492 at the end of the Reconquista of Spain, which means the expulsion of the invaders, the Islamic and other invaders from Spain, which is a process that took around 700 years. It was completed in 1492, at, at which point all the Jews were expelled from Spain. And then you had the Spanish Inquisition in which converted Jews who were forced to convert to Christianity were persecuted. And this went on from the 15th to the 19th centuries, I think, the Spanish Inquisition. So you have this great 2,000-year-old uh, history of persecution of the Jews in Europe. They have been persecuted relentlessly, mercilessly, and throughout history. And the only country where Jews have not been persecuted is, is India. They have been, they have had a small presence in India for nearly 2,000 years in some way or the other. And it's the only land outside ever, anywhere in the world, where they have been welcomed and they have been treated well and they have actually prospered. So that tells you the difference between the way the Europeans treated Jews and the way Indians treated Jews. It's it's uh, you know, it's a heaven and hell kind of difference, day and night kind of difference. And so, so that's this story of the Jewish persecution in, in Europe. It culminated with what happened during the Second World War. Hitler uh, went after them. He planned to eliminate them entirely from Europe. So before the Second World War, the Jewish population of Europe was around 9 million people. There were about 9 million Jews in Europe. By the time the Second World War ended, 6 million had been killed by Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, and... Today, I think there are less than 2 million Jews in Europe. So it's a drastic decline in population, all because of large-scale murder and genocide at the hand of the Nazis mostly. But what the Nazis did was a continuation and a culmination of what the Europeans had been doing for nearly 2,000 years. Akash asks, why is there enmity between the French and the British? This is a very good question. So this uh, enmity between the French and the British has a history that goes back at least a thousand years. So it begins with, like I said, the Viking Age, the Viking uh, invasions and raids across Europe. So the Scandinavian Vikings who came from these three countries, Denmark mainly, and also Sweden and Norway, they used to raid regions of Europe south to their countries, which is mainly... England, Northern England, and France. So there was this uh, Viking chieftain called Rollo. So Rollo was in the habit of invading and, and raiding the region of France. So the king of France made a deal with Rollo that you stop invading France, okay, 
I'm going to give you a big bunch, big uh, piece of territory in in northwestern France. You guys can settle here and you will make your peace with the French. You will uh, desist from trying to conquer Paris and you will be given this big piece of land and I will declare you as a, to be a duke. So this uh, let me show you where this region is in France. This is France. The northwestern region of France is called Normandy. So that is where these guys settled. Rollo was the first duke of Normandy. So he was a viking. So these guys the, these the norm these vikings were called Normans by the French, Northmen. So that's why this region became known as Normandy and it is these guys who were so the condition was that they would assimilate into French culture, they would marry French women, they would adopt French the French language and they would become Christians. So that's what happened. So you had a number of dukes of Normandy and i think this fifth or sixth duke of normandy william invaded england and he was the last person to successfully invade and conquer england so william the duke of normandy became william the conqueror after he conquered and uh, england became the king of england so that is the norman conquest it happened in the year 1066 that was the first basic uh, first real instance of hostility between the french and the english because by that time the normans had become french they were completely french by that time so that's the first instance of hostility and conflict between the french and the english before the normans uh, came into france basically the people of england and france were quite similar they both had celtic roots but after the norman invasion things changed then you had something called the 100 years war uh, in so the the king of england edward the 3rd made laid claims to france to regions of france which led to a war in the 13th and 14th in the 14th and 15th centuries so that war lasted more than 100 years then you had the seven years war between these two countries in the 18th century which also spilled over into india into the carnatic wars so this was in the 1450s and 14 uh, between the four, 1740s and 1760s robert clive fought the french in india and he defeated them so that's another example of uh, uh, of conflict between these two countries then you had the american war of independence in which the french sided with the revolutionaries who were seeking independence from the british so that again is a conflict between these two countries then you had the napoleonic wars napoleon wanted to invade england and he fought several battles with the english so he was uh, greatly opposed to england he saw them as a, as as an adversary nation so these are some of the instances that show you that the enmity between the english and the french has been constant for at least for almost a thousand years so that is the reason for the enmity so that is these are examples of enmity between these two countries the reason for the enmity is that these are two uh countries that both had aspirations to world domination they both had very different world views and their aspirations collided right and that's why there was this open hostility between these two countries for a very long time today the uh, it all remains below the surface but there is still distrust between the two peoples the english even today mock the french for being cowards because they were occupied by the germans in the second world war and they had to be liberated by english speaking people mainly americans and and so on so so that's a short history of the enmity between these two countries it's because of their because both had great power ambitions and those ambitions invariably collided repeatedly so that's a great question
Anmol asks, to what extent did Columbus brutalize the Native Americans? And if he did that, then why is he still glorified in textbooks and otherwise? So that's a very good question. So Columbus, uh, as we know, he reached uh, the Americas in the year 1492, if I got my date right. So let's take a look at the, the region. So we are in England right now. Let's go westwards. So Columbus was basically uh, provided with uh, ships and funding by the uh, by Spain, by the king and queen of Spain. So he promised them. So at the time, what happened was that the Ottomans had conquered the Byzantine Empire. So the land route to India was cut off. Now, India was a, a great source of, of uh, textiles and spices and other uh, other materials for Europe. Europe needed that. And they wanted to continue trading with India. Now, the Ottomans had, had cut off the trade route. So they were now seeking new ways of reaching India. The Portuguese were trying to go around Africa. And the Spanish also wanted to do that. So Columbus said it was newly known at the time that the world was round. It was no longer flat. Yeah. They had realized. So Columbus said that instead of going eastwards, I'll go westwards. I'll cross the great unknown sea and I'll reach Asia from the other side. And that's how I'll reach Europe. So that's what he promised to the king and queen of, of uh, Spain, Queen Isabella, if I'm not mistaken. And they provided him with three ships and a number of men. And he went on this great voyage into the unknown westwards of Spain in the Atlantic Ocean. And he ended up, let's take a look. Here's the map. So Columbus left from Spain and he went westwards in three ships. He had three ships with him and he ended up in the Bahamas. So the Bahamas is over here and he encountered these uh, native people here. He called them Indians. He declared that he had reached India. So he came into the Bahamas, he met these Indians, the, whom he called Indians, the native, they were the Arawak people, the Arawak people of the Bahamas, the indigenous people of the Bahamas. So he noticed that they were wearing gold earrings and all that, you know, in, uh, ornaments in, in their ears. So he took a bunch of these people as slaves and he set about finding gold. He sent a lot of these people back as slaves into Spain and uh, then he set about trying to search for gold. And he came across the island of, of uh, Hispaniola, which is the present-day Haiti in the Dominican Republic. And over here also, there were the Arawak people who were living here. So he enslaved them, okay, uh, in the hope of, of finding gold because he had promised the king and queen a great deal of gold. And once he reached a land in the Bahamas, he sent back, he, I think he went back to Spain and said he had discovered India and it was a very rich and fertile land. He needed more resources. He needed more ships and more men to get to work and get all the gold out of there and back into Spain. So now this time, the king and queen of Spain gave him 17 ships and more than a thousand men. So he came back to the Americas. He came to this island called Hispaniola. He enslaved everybody there. Everybody. Everybody about every individual about 14 was put to work. They had to uh, mine a certain amount of gold within a certain amount of time. If they did that, they were allowed to live. Otherwise, their hands and feet were chopped off and they were murdered. And everybody was put to work. All the men were put to work in mines. 
and trying to find gold and all the women were put to work separately in uh, uh, basically planting cassava plants and uh, digging up hills and all that so the men and women were separated they were, they were made to work like 18 hours a day or something and basically they all died off very very quickly there was this uh, spanish uh, missionary a spanish priest called uh, bartolome de la casas he has put it on the record he was there so he said that between 1494 and 1508 3 million people died in the dominican republic in the in the island of hispaniola the entire population was wiped out in in less than 20 years that's the scale of the genocide that columbus perpetrated he was an absolute barbaric monster that's what he was and it's amazing that he is glorified in uh, in textbooks in the united states they they still have this columbus day he is portrayed as this great explorer who brought civilization to the new world i, I don't think we would one would call that civilization the amount of brutality he brought to the new world so the people he met in the americas were very gentle they believed in sharing they were trying to help columbus they were they were happy to offer hospitality and food and everything and in return they were brutalized they were enslaved and they were basically wiped out of existence so that is what christopher columbus did in the in the americas it is a it's a pity and a shame that he is glorified even today in textbooks the world needs to know the reality about these things so the truth is that the truth is that columbus wanted to invade and occupy india and that's what the spanish royalty had funded him for it was uh, it was an expedition to india the aim was to invade occupy and colonize india so they found america that's why they did all that over there but they basically wanted to do this genocide on large scale in india and to plunder india of all its resources so that's spain for you my friends okay this is another good question why did britain or other european powers of the time never try to capture china or did they so there was definitely a conflict between the british and the chinese so let me let me show you um, let me share some images just a minute okay so this this is an image of a british opium warehouse in patna opium financed british rule in india the british forced indian farmers to cultivate opium other instead of food crops le- leading to horrific famines and the deaths of millions more than 100 million indians over time and queen victoria was the biggest drug trafficker in history forget about pablo escobar forget about anybody else queen victoria was the biggest drug trafficker in history the after carrying out these after creating these artificial famines these guys the british they forced the starving indians to carry out back breaking hard labor in return for relief and the relief consisted of less food than the nazis provided the inmates of the buchenwald death camp in the second world war that is how british uh, basically killed indians in enormous numbers and why am i talking about this because this opium 
that they forced the Indians to cultivate was used in China to extract riches out of China. Essentially, it was uh, in order to extract uh, silver from China. So here's what happened. The British went to war with China in 1839. What they were doing was they were making the they were forcing the Indians to to produce all this opium. Opium was then exported to China because the uh, opium has some use in Chinese traditional med- traditional medicine. But the British flooded China with opium, and it co- it created millions of opium addicts in China. So the Chinese emperor suddenly he realized what's happening. He became alarmed. He banned opium throughout China. He confiscated all the opium that the British had stored in warehouses and all that, and it was all dumped into the ocean. And uh, they even said a prayer to the to the uh, to the ocean gods, apologizing for the pollution. So this happened in 1839. In return, the British sent their navy to China. And they bombarded the Chinese and they had superior firepower and superior technology. So they were able to force the Chinese after a couple of years of fighting to to enter into a treaty with the British, the Treaty of Nanjing, I think, uh, which gave up Hong Kong and five other ports to the British, in which the British were were allowed to trade whatever they wanted, including opium. So this treaty was in 1842. Then again, after a few years, the Chinese tried to push back against the British because the British were were flooding China with opium, which they were getting for free from Europe. And in exchange for the opium, they were getting uh, enormous amounts of silver from China. So China was becoming impoverished by the British. They were getting uh, millions of people addicted to opium and they were extracting silver out of China. So the Chinese tried to push back again. There was a second opium war with the British in 1856. Again, the British prevailed. The Americans and the French also supported the British in this opium war. The Americans were also dealing in opium in the in China, right? So the British, the Americans, and uh, the French, they were all basically trying to enrich themselves at, at the expense of China. So the second opium war happened in 1856, I think. The Chinese again lost. There was a new treaty, a more humiliating treaty in 1858, in which 10 more ports were uh, basically given over to the Western powers, mostly the British. In 1859, the British sacked Beijing and uh, plundered the summer palace of the of the emperor of China as, as, a, as an act of humiliation of the Chinese. And some of the soldiers, I believe, that the, that the British employed in this activity were Indian soldiers. So China today uses that as a pretext of... Uh, unfinished business with India. So this was in 1859, the sack of Beijing and the plunder of the Summer Palace. So there was a revised treaty in 1859, which made opium legal in China. It also made Christianity legal in China. It brought in this enormous influx of Christian missionaries in China. And many Chinese became Christians at the time the Chinese were impoverished at the, at the time. There was this Taiping rebellion happening at the time, which uh, devastated large, large parts of Western China. So the Chinese government was in a very poor uh, and very uh, precarious position, very weak position. And the Chinese nation was greatly impoverished. People were starving. And so people became Christian in exchange for food. So this is an, a record of that. 
these Chinese who converted to Christianity for the sake of food were called by other Chinese as rice Christians. Right? So this was another form of imperialism, the introduction of a foreign religion as a means of controlling the people and in exchange for rice. So the Chinese called these, these converts rice Christians. And this is on the record. It's all recorded in books and all that, right? So this is an example of how the British humiliated and subjugated China. Then there was this Boxer Rebellion in 1899, which was a rebellion by, by Chinese against this imperialism, foreign imperialism. It was also crushed. So the Chinese call this period of, of, uh, of 100 years, they call it the century of humiliation of China. And this lasted, according to the Chinese uh, historians, from the time of the first Opium War, 1839, until Mao Zedong reconquered China and consolidated his rule over China. The Com Chinese Communist Party became the sole uh, hegemonic power in China in 1949, most likely. Right? So that is the century of humiliation. This is what is taught in every Chinese textbook. This is what every student is taught. And they are taught that the China was subjugated because China was politically, economically, and militarily inferior to the West. And ever since then, the Chinese have been trying to catch up with the West and surpass the West. So this is drilled into the head of heads of every single Chinese child and every student that China needs to overcome this deficiency which it be which caused it to be conquered. So they are trying to instill the lessons of history into their population, into their people, which is in stark contrast to India, which is trying to convince its population that, that uh, colonialism and occup foreign occupation was good for the country. So that's the difference between India and China. China is trying to modernize. The emphasis has always been on modernization and on surpassing every other nation, especially the West. And in India, it's always been of copying the West and being subservient to the West. Very different attitudes. So India is still completely colonized. China is de has decolonized way back. So this is the story of the European powers and, and British uh, interference and, and subjugation of China, which, which happened in the 19th century and went on until uh, the Chinese Communist Party came, came to power. Okay, this is by Anmol Bhatia. Was Muhammad Ghori originally a Buddhist? No. He was born a Muslim, but his ancestors were Buddhist. Okay, let's go back to the map, my friends. The map is the best thing we can use. So, give me a minute, please. Let me put the map on again. Okay, let's go back to India. So here we are, we are talking about Afghanistan. So the province of Ghor, let me show you where it is. It's in central Afghanistan. So this highlighted region over here is Ghor. It's the province of Ghor in Afghanistan. It is the central region of Afghanistan. It was called Mandesh, Mandesh in the past, before Afghanistan became Islamized, before the advent of of foreign culture into Afghanistan. Afghanistan was very much a part of the Indian subcontinent. It is still part of, of the Indian subcontinent geographically, but it was part of India culturally. It's always been part of India ethnically also. So Afghanistan 
so the gore region of afghanistan was known as mandesh and gore essentially is where these this dynasty is from the dynasty of muhammad gori and his ancestors were buddhists there was an ancestor called amir banji and a couple of other ancestors also who were all known to be buddhist it is on the record that they were practicing buddhists and they came under the uh, suzerainty of the invaders from the west from the islamic invaders and eventually i think in the 11th century uh, muhammad gori's ancestors converted to islam and then they began over time their invasions of india with the intent of islamizing india as well so muhammad gori was not a buddhist he was born a muslim but his lineage his ancestors were buddhist and before buddhism they were all hindus because buddhism and hinduism is the same thing so that is the story of muhammad gori's ancestors they were buddhists yes but he himself was not so ritesh asks why is afghanistan so difficult to rule well afghanistan has been difficult to rule only in the past 1000 years ever since it its culture changed ever since this foreign culture was imposed upon afghanistan before afghanistan became an islamic region it was hindu buddhist and there was no problem in ruling afghanistan at the, at the time what happened after the islamic conquest and conversion of afghanistan is that new ethnicities made an influx into afghanistan the people of afghanistan the original indigenous people of afghanistan are the pashtuns they are the same as the indian people look at the afghan cricket team do they look different from indians if they were if they were walking around in india in mumbai or chennai would they look any different would anybody look at them twice if i were to go to afghanistan and wear and, and not shave for a week wear a beard nobody would look at me twice i would look the same so that's the thing the afghans the pashtuns are the same people same ethnicity as 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 the indians but after the uh, invasion and, and conquest of afghanistan by uh, by the turks essentially new ethnicities made an influx into afghanistan there's a great deal of turkic component uh, ethnic component in, in, in afghanistan uh, the turkmen people the uzbek people so there are many uzbeks in afghanistan there are some turkmens as well in afghanistan so these are turkic people of turkic ancestry they regard the invasion of afghanistan and india by timur as a good thing whereas the pashtuns remember it with a great deal of pain right and they regard the so called mughal invasion of india and afghanistan as a good thing the uzbeks but the pashtuns regarded it as something that was that was painful as we know the pashtuns and the indians under king hemu fought king uh, this this invader akbar right because the pashtuns regarded themselves as indians as natives and the turks as foreigners so it is because of the influx of foreign ethnicities into afghanistan which is now part of the afghan uh, afghan uh, ethnic makeup they are all afghan citizens now so it is these conflicting interests conflicting cultures conflicting viewpoints of history etc which has created so much internal strife in afghanistan during the uh, taliban era during the civil war era you had the uzbek warlords and the Ta- tajik warlords and pashtun warlords all fighting each other right 
And so, so that is the reason why Afghanistan is so fragmented internally, why it is so difficult to rule, and why there is so much internal strife between the Pashtuns and other other people. And the Hazaras are universally detested for being the descendants of, of Mongol invaders. Right? So, so that is the history behind the strife that you see in Afghanistan today. That's why the country is so difficult to handle. Because every ethnicity has a, has a different worldview and they have different allegiances in different directions. So that is the uh, leftover issue of history. It is the unfinished business of history. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be difficult, whoever comes to power in Afghanistan after the US withdrawal to, to make peace and, 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 and keep the peace in this, in this land. So it is all a consequence of the Turkic invasions of India that this problem exists in Afghanistan today. Yashwardhan asks, why did the British not create a separate state for the Kurds? Okay, so we have to understand what the British were doing when they were colonizing the world. They did not colonize India and other parts of the world to do some good to the local people, right? They basically colonized these countries for the sake of plunder and extraction. They had no benevolent intentions, right? They were not some NGO coming to, to improve your, your condition and to, and to uplift your nation. Their only agenda was to enrich themselves at the expense of the conquered lands and the conquered territories. And wherever they went, when they withdrew, they left behind more strife. They partitioned India into several pieces instead of unifying India because they had no intention of doing any good in India. And they wanted to keep conflicts simmering in this region so that they could extract long-term geopolitical benefits, continuing geopolitical benefits, because they still had interests in the Gulf region. And they wanted Pakistan to be on their side. So they divided India into these pieces. And similarly, when it comes to Kurdistan, they had no interest in uplifting or, or giving justice to the Kurdish people. How did they care about anybody? All they cared was that they got, got their oil from the Middle East region. And that's why, that's why they created all these fragmented states in the Middle East. These are all artificial states. Iraq and, and Jordan and Syria and all that. These borders are going to change. We are already seeing the slow redrawing of the boundaries in the Middle East. So these are all artificially created boundaries. Many of them are just straight lines that just doesn't work. You know, these things will change over time by the forces of, of geopolitics and history and power. So that's why the British, basically the entire Middle East conflict is a legacy of the, of the actions of the British during the time they were in occupation of these, of these lands. So they were not interested in, in doing any justice to anybody. The Kurdish people have been basically bereft of a homeland for several centuries. And how would the British care? <laughs> so that's why the British did not create a separate state for the Kurds. And I don't think the Kurds will have a sta separate state anytime soon. The Kurdish people are divided across a, a number of countries, across Iran and Turkey and parts of Syria, Iraq as well probably. Right, and uh, and it, it's hard for, hard to see them acquiring a, a country of their own anytime 
anytime in the in the in the, in the coming coming years or decades so i hope that answers your question the british were not a benevolent force they were an oppressive extractive force they were a force of plunder their only intention was to break up countries to 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 devastate peoples and to extract all the resources and enrich themselves and that's why they have such a high standard of living and that's why their gdp is so high right it's all the result of plunder and extraction okay pink line cabs asks why didn't any asian empire take part in colonization despite being powerful as european empires it's a cultural thing uh the entirety of asia east of india was essentially a land that was greatly influenced by dharmic culture over the past 2000 years right and dharmic culture is essentially uh, a benevolent culture the concept of colonization is completely alien to it so there is a difference between conquest and colonization conquest is you go and capture a territory that is not your own you conquer it colonization is you destroy the land destroy the culture impose your own culture on them by force and extract all their wealth and resources and enrich your country at their expense that is colonization that is what the europeans believed in it was a doctrine that was advocated by the uh, by the vatican by the, by the by the by the catholic church they declared that any land that doesn't have christians is uh, is called uh, what's the term one second let me just it's terra nullius i think the terra nullius terra nullius means uh, a land that has uh, that is owned by nobody so if you if you if a european nation were to conquer a country whose whose inhabitants were not christians then that was considered to be by the church as land that is owned by nobody because those people who are not christians are not are not deemed to be human beings they are subhuman so it was fair game for christians to go and plunder such lands and kill any inhabitants enslave them because they were not humans and to try and impose christianity on them in order to uplift them so to say so that is the entire concept and the and the moral justification religious justification that drove european colonization of the world so it justified colonization it justified slavery it justified genocide there is no such justification in any dharmic religion or even in any asian polytheistic culture this this is just unacceptable in any of these cultures or moralities and that's why asian empires did conquer but they never colonized they never destroyed any any culture they did not impose a separate culture on the natives then they did not pillage and plunder and extract wealth out of any other country for example we know that the indians the cholas conquered the whole of southeast asia and they did not ever take anything out of southeast asia right there may be have been maybe one or two recorded instances of of a little bit of plunder here and there as a form of revenge against against some king but overall if you look at the large picture india enriched these lands india did not extract from these lands and the number one rule was when you conquer a foreign land you will never touch the civilian population never that is the number one rule 
of ethics and morality and warfare in the in the dharmic world so they would conquer the land but they would never touch the civilian population who were allowed to continue living as they pleased unimpeded as per their own way of life and that is the re- reason why the natives throughout southeast asia over time adopted hinduism and later buddhism because they deemed this culture to be superior these guys conquered us and yet they let us live in peace and actually basically so that, that that's the thing right it is the mark of a superior culture that you they you have been able to conquer them and yet you did not molest them you did not do any harm to them so that is why hinduism and buddhism were adopted willingly across southeast asia and that's why they consider it to be their own culture today they don't consider it to be a foreign culture or indian culture it is their own culture so that explains why asian empires did not ever take part in colonization now you do have examples in china for example where they did colonize lands and and uh, devastate large parts of of other countries from time to time because chinese confusion see china is was mostly a dharmic country but their emperors were never buddhists their emperors always followed confucianism which is an atheistic uh, tradition and it is all about uh, so they they balanced two forces confucianism and legalism so legalism is the hard and unbridled pursuit of power confucianism is a slightly tempered version of that so these two forces were, were balanced and the chinese emperors only uh, believed in do, these two precepts they never believed in any any they never converted to buddhism they never adopted buddhism and that's why their rule has always been brutal if you see the rule of most chinese emperors it's been quite brutal and uh, so so that's the story so that is the overall reason why asian empires did not indulge in colonization despite being as powerful as european empires even the mongols they conquered but they never colonized mongolia is not a massively rich country today it's actually a reasonably poor country because they never extracted wealth from anywhere despite having the greatest empire the world has ever seen in recorded history because they also were polytheists later they became buddhists and such practices were just unacceptable so i hope that answers your question why asian empires did not take part in colonization despite being so powerful okay let me take a few live questions okay so why did the mongolian empire divide throughout history so in the past you see we did not have technology we did not have communication the way we have today today you can pick up the phone and call anybody in the, on the other side of the world you can call anybody anywhere in the world at a moment's notice so communication is more or less instantaneous today so if you are an army commander or an emperor you can coordinate across enormous distance, distances in real time in those days keeping such a large empire unified was an enormously difficult task the mongols had a very efficient system of communication uh, they had a postal system they had a courier system they had these these uh, horse riders who would cover enormous dis- distances in very short periods of time and they had brilliant commanders like subotai who could coordinate armies several hundred kilometers apart in real time almost miraculously but as the empire grew it was it became impossible 
to coordinate it in in, in by, through and have a single and have a single uh, seat of power and that's why chinggis khan was forced to divide his empire among his sons upon his death so he had decreed that whenever he died his sons would get uh, various pieces or various regions of his empire because it was logistically impossible to govern such a large empire from just one place under just one khan so that is the main reason why the mongolian empire divided because it was so large it was impossible to govern effectively efficiently from just one place so it was better to have a number of khans who governed their own uh, piece of the empire those pieces too were quite large so there is the beginning of the split of the mongol empire fragmentation because it was impossible to do this task without the kind of technology we have today so that's the reason neha asks why is religion so significant in the world well throughout history see the history of humanity is a history of violence and wars you go back as far back as records are available as data is available you see wars every period of history the shortest period of history in which you, which you can see change is the decade if you look at history decade after decade in the past 2000 years or even further back you see things changing because of wars and conflicts so humans are by nature a violent species an aggressive species our history has been a history of war and conflict every geopolitical change that has been brought about in history has been as a result of warfare right every new kingdom empire that rose and fell all the forces that drive the world are the forces of conflict warfare all that so that's why humans need some morality a code of ethics and morals and that is what historically religion has provided it also basically uh, keeps you grounded and uh, it it basically gives people uh it gives people something that is already there a code of ethics and morals Uh, uh, it tells you what is right what is wrong what you can do what you can't do so it is basically um the foundation upon which you can base your actions right so that is why religion has been so significant in the world it also groups certain ethnicities and all that together in case of certain religions and today what we are seeing in the in the west is the decline of christianity the precipitous decline of christianity which is why europe is so confused because they've lost their religion they've lost their ideological or or moral moorings so unless you have a code of morality a code of values a code of values and morals unless you have that you are lost in life that's why europe is so lost right now it is struggling with strife and not just europe the americas also the united states right now what we are seeing in the united states is is a time of a great divide in the country so there are the people who are conservative who still believe in christianity and the people on the left who have given up christianity and who advocate this new religion of wokeness or liberalism or whatever you call it and you see similar things in europe happening because religion has been uh, has eroded out of their their society because they have seen through christianity now and they realize that it's it's been a force of not that that much good in europe so that is why religion is significant you need some foundational bedrock to your life a bedrock of morality and values that is the reason why religion is significant
Okay, let me take a couple of questions. Okay, the similarity between Norse gods and Hindu gods. So the Norse pantheon is the same as the Hindu pantheon, is the old Vedic pantheon, in which you replace Indra with Thor and the other gods with various various equivalent divinities. So that's the thing. You, that's the pattern you see across Europe. Whether you see it in the whether you see the Greek gods or the Roman gods or the Slavic gods or the Norse gods or the Celtic gods. They are all local manifestations of the ancient Vedic pantheon, right? So you have in the Vedic pantheon, you had this, the greatest of the gods was Indra. He was a god who's, who had two main weapons. Both were called Vajra. So Vajra took the form of a, of a mace or a hammer. It also took the form of the thunderbolt. Zeus is also the same kind of god. Uh, Jupiter is the same god. And Thor is the same god. Thor also has a hammer. And he also has a thunderbolt. So this is the similarity of these cultures because it is essentially the same culture. It spread throughout Eurasia many thousand years ago from somewhere. The Westerners say that it came from Europe, from from Eastern Europe, the so-called Aryan invasion. But today more and more evidence is emerging that it actually emerged out of India westwards so that is a topic for another discussion, but that's why you have the similarity across Europe and all the way into India. The same gods with different names. Okay, one more question and then we will be done for today. Women are mentioned in the Arthashastra seem to be subservient to the man. It also mentions that non-Aryas could be taken slaves. Did the status of women and ethics fall in Cotillian society? You know, these, these people that translate Das into slave, that is a deliberate mistranslation. Dasa means servant. A servant is not a bad or low class uh, in society. The prime minister is the greatest servant, isn't he? Bureaucrats and public servants are servants and yet they lord over us today. So Das doesn't mean servant. Okay. And non-Aryas could be taken slave. I mean, these are all colonial distortions of what the actual text says. And I don't see where women are supposed to be subservient to men. Women had the highest of status in Indian society, which I have spoken about before. The Rig Veda has a great number of verses that were written by women. Show me any society in the world where the holiest text, where the foundational text of the society, of the culture, of the civilization is to a great deal authored by women. You won't see this anywhere in the world. Only in India could women uh, be queens on a routine basis. Nowhere else in the world will you find these things. So all of these are modern revisionist takes on Indian society. So we need to decolonize as a country and as a society in order to see what we really were. And to do that, we have to revisit the actual texts in the original Sanskrit language and see what they are telling us, right? Because today all the translations and and commentaries about these texts are are done by Marxist historians who try to see everything through the the lens of, of class oppression. 
end of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and all that so essentially the only aim is to is to create divisions in society and to reinterpret the past according to the marxist lens of class struggle so that's not how the world works especially not india these uh, these concepts of class struggle and and uh, oppression and uh, and the, all these marxist uh, constructs are completely irrelevant in a society like india this this uh, ideology of marxism emerged in europe because it was it was to some extent relevant to the capitalistic oppression that you were witnessing in europe in the 19th century that has no relevance in a society like india's which has never been a capitalistic society or an oppressive society so we need to see things in the correct context so i will discuss this in greater detail in a future video most likely so so thank you for asking this question these are important questions that we need to take up okay so great session and thank you very much for all your questions and i will see you in the next episode it's been a great episode today thank you i will see you tomorrow bye